<laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad you won't, because the answer would be no. Can we open the windows at least? You no, can open the door. See where it says emergency egress only? You can egress there for a second. Here, seriously. I do feel like it's an emergency. Um, can you give me a chair? Not my chair, though. I don't think it'll work. Thank you. So is that a no to the windows? They don't know. Yeah, I don't mean actually open the windows. No, because then there's some light. Some light is bad. Can we open the shades? No. I mean, enough's enough. My God. You want us all to be dusted? <laughs> what? That feels so good. Yeah, but opening the shades will just mean hot sunlight streaming through. I agree. It's a bad idea. It's, a, it's, it's called the greenhouse effect. Um, did I never quote for you um, what the great French novelist Marguerite Duras says about reading? Um, so she was, do people know who she is? Um, there's a movie a while ago called The Lover, um, which is based on a novel of hers, and she also wrote the screenplay for the kind of cult um, Art house favorite called Hiroshima Monomore. Um, no, okay. Well, she's she died what ten or fifteen years ago. Um, but uh, if you take French, you would probably read something by her in third year French. Um, she's really great. Um, if you read French, does anyone? Um, well, uh, a very short thing that you could read by her, which would show you how great she was, is a short story really called. Um, La Maladie de l'Amour. Um, it's translated, The Malady of Death, but it's much better in French. Anyhow, she was asked about um, her reading practices um, in an interview, and she said that uh, she only read at night, um, and certainly she never read outdoors. And the interviewer said, why not? And she said, um, because if she was reading outdoors, um, then she was distracted by the two lights, the light of the sun and the light of the book. And she wanted only the light of the book um, when she read. So um, that's what we have is the light of the book. And these are pre-iPad you know, iPad days, so the light of the book is actually the light coming off ink and paper, um, the real light, not the false um, light of LEDs, false light-emitting diodes, but the Miltonic light that streams always from the book. Yeah. Speaking of the proper way to read a book, to be honest, I think, I mean, I've read this twice in classes, and I think we ruined the turn of the screw by reading it as a group. It's not meant to be a shared experience, in my opinion. Okay, so, but you're reading it at home, right? Yeah, true, well, but... Well, I mean, contrary to that, I feel like there's a lot of it I wouldn't understand if we didn't talk about it. True, but I mean, there's a reason there's never been a really successful ver film version of the turn of the screw, which is that the story doesn't work as well as a shared experience. Have there been any attempts? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, including with Nicole Kidman. That's the governess. The others. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't like that idea? Loose, Mrs. Coulter, the governess, you know, um, whatever her name is, and eyes wide shut. Um, uh, what do other people think? So you, this is the first time you're reading it? And are you finding it spooky? 
Not particularly. That's because you're reading in a group. You would say, <laughs> right? That's my, that's my theory. It, ru- it, it dispels the, the spookiness of it. I think the scariness of the story is the idea of this is something that's being handed to you. And but this. he's reading it aloud to a group. Douglas. True. But on the other hand, we're reading about him reading it aloud maybe to that's, a group. Maybe that's his attempt to dispel the scariness of it. I don't think he wants to I dispel the does. scariness. I think the dispel the scariness would be talking about it. Yeah. Which is what we're doing. Which is what we're doing. Um, and which, what they're not, at least, that yeah. we can see. Yeah, um, he refuses to say things. That is, um, I t- the story will tell I took it upon myself. The story won't tell, Douglas replies, not in any literal vulgar sense. So we're trying to tell what the story won't tell, maybe. Yeah. I think one way for to, to have the story like retain its spookiness would be, um, I mean, I guess like in the future, like if you have people like read it, like the entire novel mm-hmm. before you start talking about it because that way you have the experience of reading it like untainted by yeah. discussion and yeah. you can start from the beginning yeah and um, would you guys have wanted that? nope no I, I... <laughs> it gave us a long time to read it yeah um, I mean, that's not why I mean that like I like I like understanding it more than I would have liked being spooked by it um, well so what I'm hoping I'm not certain, but what I'm hoping will happen is that it'll regain its spookiness. Um, even does is anyone finding it spooky? I did when I read it. When you read it, <laughs> um, not at all. How come? I mean, I, what a what a question. They're so afraid, and I don't see any reason for it. And the they age, who like all the the governess and the um, Mrs. Gross housekeepers. Yeah. They're they're terrified constantly, and it's all the writing is like this is really scary. But I don't see any reason for it. Isn't that and kind of scary? In and they of talk itself? to each other, and they're like, "Really? Was it like that? Oh, yes, it was." And you, okay, so not saying things. The short answer is we're a desensitized generation, apparently. <laughs> no, like they're not being specific at all, and so they're just like I don't. I'm like, if I got to know the characters better. And so I trusted them, and then they were scared. Then I would be scared. Mm-hmm. But they're just—I just meet them, and immediately they're scared. And I'm like, "Well, you're just stupid." Um, what do you think of the kids? They're terrified. Yeah, they're creepy. Kids yeah. are creepy. Kids are always creepy. Well, not before this novel. That was James's invention. Is the is the um, bad seed sort of child, um, the child that um, whose very radiant, apparent radiant innocence is um, the ultimately the most frightening thing about it or him or her. Um, the question, what I, ask, what I ask you guys to think about um, uh, at the end of class on Monday, one way of, of reposing that question is to ask, which nurse is the governess like? Is she like the innocent nurse or the experienced nurse? Um, which nurse is she most like? There's. I don't think, in fact, I'm almost certain that there's no influence there. That is that James, when he wrote Turn of the Screw, um, almost certainly hadn't read Blake. Um, Blake wasn't well known yet. Um, But I think that it's still a helpful and useful juxtaposition to think about the two nurses and the two nurses' songs and um, the governess. Is she um, hearing whisperings or is it um, is it uh, laughter, the voices of children and laughter. Gilla? I think she's the experienced nurse, because, um, I don't know, like, as I was going through the novel, I just found, like, a couple of, you know, references that could have been, you know, sexual symbolism, and I had to, like, go back and reread them, but, like, 
for instance, like Flora's little toy boat with the mast, mm -hmm. like the way that you put it together, just, I don't know, I thought that that couldn't have been accidental. Okay. So I just felt like she was probably more like the experienced nurse because of that. Um, she, the governess. Yeah. That is because, um, okay, so the, there, are two, there's, there are questions we can ask about the two nurses also. In other words, um, when I say which nurse is she like, there's also the question of which of the two nurses is more accurate about the children. And so the governess, what we could say about the innocent nurse is there are two ways the innocent nurse could be innocent. One is that she is innocent the way the children are innocent, and that's a great thing. And so, we, so if we were doing this, isn't one of you a bio major? Neurobio, yeah. So if you were doing it as, as alleles, it would be children would be would be big eye and nurse would be small eye or vice versa. We would have an eye eye um, innocent innocent nurse in the innocent nurses song, or we could have innocent nurse but actually um, sexually curious children. Um, so the nurse might be um, not seeing what's really going on. I had a question about that. I thought maybe I was reading it wrong, but it seemed to me as if something sexually sexual was implied about um, the the ghosts, the governess, and her lover, and the children. Or am I reading that wrong? You mean Peter Quint yes. and Quint and Miss yes. Jessel? Yeah, um, it's it's implied. Okay, um, it's possibly there. Um, but okay, let's just to, t to talk about Blake for one more second, um, just to clarify the question. There's one possibility in the so there there are two there are two songs, Song of Innocence and Song of Experience. In the Song of Innocence, what we might have is innocent children, innocent nurse. That would be one. That would be like the lamb, little lamb who made the says the innocent child to the innocent lamb. Clearly, two two kinds of innocence. Or we could have. Um, sneaky children taking advantage of innocent nurse in the same way that we have sneaky oppressors taking advantage of innocent chimney sweeps. Um, so the song might be sung by someone who's innocent, but the thing the song is about, the innocent person might not realize that the thing the song is about is not innocent. Um, so in the Song of Innocence, what we certainly have is the tone, the dominating um, um, allele is innocence because the singer is an innocent person. Um, but, the sing but the other allele might be um, about someone innocent, the lamb, for example, or about someone not innocent, the um, uh, the father of the chimney sweep or the, um, the runner of the chimney sweeps. Um, and so we could ask about the innocent nurse's song. Um, the nurse is innocent. What about the children in that song? And to see what I mean by that, you might say, well, obviously the children are younger than the nurse. If she's innocent, they're really innocent. Um, but that's not true. Um, or at least that doesn't necessarily follow because it's one of Freud's insights. And I will, I, I will stop saying whatever else you think about Freud um, because if you haven't read Freud, you actually don't know what he says. But it is one of Freud's insights um, that people idealize what children are interested in. Just remember what you were like as a child and then look at the children of today and look how sweet and innocent they are 
and um, then remember what life was like when you were that age. You know, go think about the cruelty that you experienced in second grade. And then look at a bunch of second graders and see if you can think of any of them as cruel. And yet some of them are. Um, and it's what we do when we grow up is we idealize children. And what Freud basically says is that um, it's not quite that we're innocent when we're older, but it's we have a belief in innocence um, because we've forgotten that there wasn't, that we weren't innocent when we were that young. Whether he's right about that or not, or to the, what extent he's right about that or not, it's nevertheless quite possible that we think of, um, that when we grow out of innocence, we think of children as being more innocent than they are. And that could be what Blake is saying in the Innocent Nurse's song. And the experienced nurse might be telling us that. That is, look at that innocent nurse. Here these children were sneaking around and staying away from her and pretending that they were being just cute and sweet. But actually what they were doing in the veils was playing doctor and smoking dope. Um, and then they came out and said, oh, yes, we've just been on the swings and life is wonderful. Um, but that wasn't true. Um, so that's what the experienced nurse might be teaching us about the innocence of the innocent nurse. The experienced nurse might get, it tr might get it right. So then in the song of experience, the EE song, it could be an EE song or it could be an EI. That is, the phenotype is experience. I'm experienced and the children are experienced. We're all experienced. But it could be the genotype, which is kind of what we were assuming when we read it, is um, I think the children are experienced because their innocence is swamped by my um, wrong imputation of sneakiness and sexuality onto them. Does this make sense to people? I, I said it quickly, but I think it's fairly clear. So, the, so there are four possibilities. In the, in the two, two songs each have two possibilities. Innocent, innocent is one possibility. Um, innocent singer experienced children is the second possibility for the song of innocence. For the song of experience, it could be experienced nurse, that is experienced speaker, but innocent children. Or it could be experienced speaker, experienced children. Notice that, the, that if you do this in the standard um, matrix, which we always write down when we have chalk, is um, just imagine, well, this is, all, this, is a, this is a course on imaginative literature, so just imagine. Um, you would have E, E, I, I, Song of Experience, Song of Innocence. One possibility is um, E, I. Um, one possibility, forget it, I'm not even going to go through it with that chalk. Um, but, but notice that in one of them, in two of them, the nurse is right. I'm an I'm I, the innocent nurse, am right that the ch that the children are innocent, or I, an experienced nurse, am right that the children are experienced. In two of them, the nurse is wrong. I, an experienced nurse, am wrong that the children are experienced, or I, an innocent nurse, am wrong that the children are innocent. Um, obviously, um, you can't. Not all four of those um, can coexist in a single ecosystem. Um, but those are the possibilities. So when I say, is the governess like the nurse in the Song of Experience or the nurse in the Song of Innocence? Um, or we could say, does she change? Does she go from being one kind of nurse to the other? Part of that question has to be, if she, is she 
innocent as in the innocent innocence scenario, or is she innocent as in the innocent experience scenario, or is she experienced as in the experienced innocence scenario, or is she experienced as in the experienced experience scenario? Um, and just to, yeah. Um, my guess would be that, like, the, like, she's experienced and the children are innocent. Mm -hmm. Because it seems that she, like, her greatest fear is that the children will be corrupted. Not that they'll be, like, physically harmed, but, like, she keeps using the word corruption over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like almost, like, the same kind of paranoia that drives her fear of the ghosts. Mm -hmm. So, like, whether she's afraid that the children were, like, um, corrupted by Quentin Jessel or by the ghosts or, like, you know, she thinks that, like, Miles would, like, she guesses that, like, Miles may have been accused of corrupting other children, mm -hmm. and she's, like, keeps bringing up this thing about them being corrupted, that, like, it's so repetitive that it makes me think that it can't be true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. I want to say, I, I mean, I think the innocent experience dichotomy doesn't isn't quite so simple in this. I think that was simple. Okay. I mean, all right. Let's, more let's make it complicated then. Go for I mean, it. The Don't accuse of, me. The question stuff. of whether they're innocent or experienced is really the question of do they are they aware that there's something else going on or are they not? Mm -hmm. Are they experiencing something with these ghosts, whether they exist or not, or are they not? Mm -hmm. But you still have to break that down into are they victims of the ghost or are they perpetrators? Are they Perpetrators, no. how would that? Yeah, I mean, or, yeah, or no, yeah. conspirators. Are they cons? Yeah, be a better word. Yeah. Are they conspirators with the ghosts, or are they victims? And is it possible to differentiate between the two? Can yeah, you be one and not the other. Yeah. yeah, you're not raising your hand. You're stretching. Okay. Yeah, I agree with what Ben is saying, and I think that that also kind of applies to our perception of the governess, and that if she's, if in Blake there there is a, a nurse with two very isolated understandings of the children's behavior then she really is kind of neither because this whole story is about her coming to understand their behavior. So I almost, if I had to couch it in that context, would say she is the nurse in between innocence and experience. She is the nurse becoming experienced, mm -hmm. and this is her experience. Okay. Um, she certainly leaves experienced. Um, there's no question about that. How many people have finished um, ever? All right. Um, well, these these are questions um, that we'll keep thinking about. Let me let let's start with um, uh, just a question of, of bear and getting. Uh, 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 now, actually, I'm going to say a general thing. Remember that poor Douglas is dead. That's what we um, spent some time on um, on Monday. Um, one way to re. Um, enchant or re-estrange this book for you, make it strange again, um, is to consider the possibility, which I actually think is true, so just um, stipulate. Do people know what stipulate means? Um, what does it mean? Well, as, yeah. It's sort of like establish as true before you even start reading something. Yeah, agree that it's true. Yeah. So it's it's actually a legal term. Yeah. And what happens when there are stipulations is both sides in a legal um, process will agree um, on a fact as being true. There's a very famous case, a Supreme Court case, where um, both sides agreed on something being true that was physically impossible. 
Um, but, and the Supreme Court said that doesn't matter. Um, that if both sides agreed that that was true, um, then the argument, since the way, what, what cases were about was arguing um, different perspectives, when there wasn't a difference in perspective, it didn't matter if it was false. If both sides agreed that it was true, um, then the place that the argument mattered and what the lawsuit was about was not about that fact, even if it turns out not to be a fact. It wasn't about that. So stipulation is, um, it has an interesting relation to fiction, which is that we are accepting as true something um, that in some cases is absolutely manifestly false. Um, that's what we do when we read a work of fiction is, um, you know, we talked about this before, but if you take a final exam and someone says, um, who killed Hamlet's father, um, and you haven't read the play, um, you can always say no one because he didn't exist, nor did his father, nor did any murderer of his father. They're all fictional. Therefore, you have to give me an A on this exam because I am talking about the truth. Um, and that won't work unless you have um, a really clever teacher. Oh, you're in a philosophy class. Uh, yeah, it'll work least of all in a philosophy class. Um, <laughs> but um, the reason it won't work is because the, because the very idea of fiction is that we stipulate certain things. If you were to talk about what you stipulate in Turn of the Screw, we stipulate that there was this Christmas party, that Douglas did read the manuscript, that the narrator does have a copy of the manuscript, um, and in the governess of story, we will stipulate. I mean, in a sense, what you could say is Douglas is telling us here are the stipulations. Um, she went to see the master. She only saw him twice. She agreed to, um, uh, to take on this job. Um, it seems pretty clear that she did have a crush on the master, because that's what the narrator um, guesses and what Douglas confirms. Um, he doesn't quite want to confirm it, but then he does confirm it. Um, and then we can stipulate in the governess's story, she does go to Bly. There is someone there named Mrs. Gross. In other words, one question that people will ask is, is the governess psychotic? Is she hallucinating stuff? And you can say that about any work of literature. You know, it could very well be that Victor Frankenstein has hallucinated um, the creation of the monster. Oh no, he can't have because Robert Walton sees the monster. But maybe Robert Walton is hallucinating all this. Half of you have read Fra it's Frankenstein? It's cold up there. It's yeah. Really cold yeah, what happened? Yeah. Um, but you can say that about anything. Um, you know, it's uh, one day a young boy whose name was Jonathan Smith um, ate some um, morning glory seeds and he suddenly thought that his name was Harry Potter and that he had a scar on his forehead and lo, there were, there were um, what? 6,000 pages of his hallucination, but what J.K. Rowling wanted us to see was that this was all the dream of a young man named Jonathan Smith, only she never quite told us that. Um, so, yeah, that's in the eighth book, which doesn't exist. Um, so, Harry Potter and the Disappointment. <laughs> but we couldn't, we couldn't get anywhere with fiction unless we held some of it as not arguable. 
in order to argue about um, or guess at the other stuff. In other words, Hercule Poirot, for example, he's got to be a detective who's trying to figure out who committed the crime. Other people are lying to him. At least one person is lying to him in any Hercule Poirot story. Um, so some people are not telling the truth, but we have to accept that some of what we're being told is true in fiction. We stipulate the truth of some things. Yeah. Oh, your hand wasn't up. Okay, so what we'll stipulate is the governess really does go to Bly. And there really is a housekeeper there named Mrs. Gross. And there really are two children there named Flora and Miles. And there really is, she really does have a job as a governess. And they really do go to church. And, they, and Miles really has been kicked out of school. And the master really has told her, don't tell me anything deal with my solicitor, get the money from my agent. We'll stipulate further that, you know, there are lots of things like that we, that we can stipulate. And then the question is, what don't we know? And why don't we know it? What can't we stipulate? And why can't we stipulate to it? And one thing that we don't know is whether the children are telling the truth or lying. Um, what we can stipulate is the governess is not lying to us. If the governess is lying to us, then there's no place that we can, um, we can draw a bright line between what's at issue and what isn't. And if you can't draw a bright line between what's at issue and what isn't, all you have is phantasmagoria. You can say that about any fictional work. If you can't draw a bright line between what's at issue and what isn't, um, then there's nothing, no coherence in what you're reading. Um, there has to be a coherent framework. That's what we stipulate to, is the coherent framework. And then what's in that frame, that living frame for one more picture, what's in that frame is what um, we'll want to find out. Because fiction is always a process of not knowing something and coming to know it. In the simplest sense, we don't know what happens next. We do know that Hansel and Gretel are little children. We do know that their father and stepmother take them to a forest and abandon them. We do know that a witch captures them and does bad things or is proposing to do bad things to them. But what we don't know is, how will they escape? What will happen next? Um, what is the witch's plan? Um, so there's plenty we don't know. But what we don't know is always the gaps, always defined by the gaps in what we do know. And what gives us, what makes gaps possible, is the facts that we stipulate that, that we simply accept as background. And that's what we're getting here. So part of the question here, then, is what can we stipulate? Now, um, what I would like to stipulate, and now this isn't um, a stipulation to be found in the book, except maybe after you've read it 10 or 12 times, but what I would like to stipulate is that this book wasn't complete in James's mind. That is, James himself did not regard this book as coming to completion until after his death. It required him to die for this book to be done. Um, in, if that sounds weird to you, just consider that that's how last wills work. That is, that whatever you say in your last will and testament, it only becomes your last will and testament when you die. Um, you write 
I was always puzzled by this as a little kid when I saw mystery movies, that there would be a document which said last will and testament. And I would always wonder to myself, but how do they know it's their last will? You know, or, you know, what, what um, does that really mean that um, this person now can't change anything because he wrote last will and testament? Um, but the answer is that the word last only becomes true in the last will that someone writes, which can only be the case when they've died and they can't write another will. So it takes death to make the word last a true word in the title of a will. And if you've written several wills, um, then it only becomes true in one of them. Which one? The last one. How do you know it's the last? Because the person has died, and there are no more to be had after that. So the word last is made true by the legator's death. I think the same is true of Turn of the Screw. That is that this book, by design, is not finished until James dies. And what I mean by that is that James was scrupulously careful not ever to give away the secret of the book. And the point was, once he's dead, then it's almost as though we are dealing with his ghost in trying to figure out what this book is saying when the person who said it is no longer there to say it, no longer there to error correct us. And I think that was his point. So one true ghost, one real ghost, is the book itself, or the intelligence behind the book. Like poor Douglas, like the governess. So here's my question for you. How many dead people are there at the start of the book? How many people? You mean at the start of the, at the, start governess's of the, at the start of the governess's story? Um, now we've read the frame. So not in time, but in our chronological reading of the book. That is, in 1838, let's say, um, the governess isn't dead and Douglas isn't dead. Um, but in 1898, they're both dead. So, ham so counting the governess and Douglas, how many dead people are there? Count them. Peter Quint, Miss Jessel, the, two, the parents of the, the caretaker of the children, and the parents of the governess, six. OK, the P Peter Quint, Miss Jessel, the um, parents of the gentleman. And the parents of the children. Too. The parents of the children, yeah. Yeah. That makes eight. Yeah. Parents of the children. The parents of the, the, parents of the governess. And the parents of the man who's supposed to be taking care of the children. The, his parents died as well, which yeah. is why he has to take but care that, of them. Um, he's, he's called the master. Mrs. Gross. Presumably, but we don't know that for sure. I mean, what are the odds? But yeah. who do we know? Who, whose death has been <clears throat> mentioned? By the, by, at the point that, um, no, Mrs. Gross is, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Whose death has been mentioned one way or another at the point, by the time we've read to the point that the narrative begins. So Douglas is the first person whose death has been mentioned, right? Um, when his death was in sight, he confided the manuscript to me. Douglas is the first person whose death has been mentioned. Um, the governess is the second person whose death has been mentioned. Um, who else's death has been mentioned? Well, you said, but let's go and let's do it again. So Douglas, the governess, who else? 
Quint and Miss Jessel. Okay. Um, that's by the time you get 10 pages into it, let's say, but that's fine. Quint and Miss Jessel, who else? You said. Why, why is the governess taking care of the two children? Because their parents are dead. Because their parents are, are dead. That's six. And the master's parents are dead. The master's parents are dead. That's eight. And her that, parents are dead because she needs a job. Yeah, and the governess's parents are dead. So ten dead people. Um, how many living people? Three, four. <laughs> Do you know this joke? According, since, since I, I, you know, I know you don't like Freud, but according to Freud, what comes between fear and sex? Five. All right. Yeah. You heard it? Yeah. Isn't yeah. it great? Very funny. I think so. I think so, it's too. It's too early to laugh. I though. think it's hilarious. Yeah. Do people get it? That's cute. It's cute. Anyone count, can anyone count in German? No. That's fine. Get it. No. Uh, fear, fünf, sex. Yeah, that's stop there. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, so according to Freud, what becomes between what comes between fear and sex? Fünf. <laughs> the accent is until the punchline. It's my normal accent, but I teach. It's like, <laughs> I teach in an accent, so it sounds fancy. Um, okay. Um, so yes, you were saying that between between fear and sex, that's how many people are alive. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, and then there, there are various um, people who did, there are various um, background artists or extras. Um, but those are essentially the speaking parts. Um, I'm almost certain, I don't want to say this for sure because, because I actually haven't um, thought about checking, but I'm almost certain there are no other speaking parts um, in the, the book. Does he talk? Well, in the letter, yeah. Sorry, the schoolmaster in the letter, yeah. He could have died right after he wrote it. Okay, yes. <laughs> I think we can presume that he has. Well, we can probably say that whoever, I mean, we can presume the deaths of um, anyone who's older than the governess, because the governess is older than Douglas, and Douglas dies. Um, um, Douglas is at least 60 when the narrative begins, um, and he dies much later. So we're talking, if, pe if they're survivors, they're in their 80s and 90s, and that's just not, um, we don't expect people to be alive at that age in a fiction unless the um, author or the narrative tells us that they're alive. But the point is there are an awful lot of dead people and not that many living people, comparatively speaking, even at the very start. Yeah. What was that published year? 1898. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, there's plenty of alive people in the house, you just never see yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. So that's just, I don't know, it's the, the bias of James. Yeah. That he has this giant house and it's full of servants, mm -hmm. but he never mentions them at all. Yeah, which makes them a little bit spooky also. I mean, just a little bit, but again, if you were thinking of, I think the reason there's a temptation to make a movie out of this is that it does feel cinematic in various ways. She sees things from far away. There's also an opera um, based on this um, by Benjamin Britten, um, which is, it has its, um, it's a pretty amazing opera. It, it does some things, I think, really badly wrong in the way that you would have to do if you're turning this into an opera. But you can imagine 
just how beautifully, how beautiful the children's parts are. Um, I mean, that would be part of the point, is to have um, beautiful children singing utterly beautiful songs. Um, and so Britain writes these songs for the children that are utterly beautiful and have nothing to do with anything in the book, um, except that they're about learning lessons. Um, there's uh, Miles sings a song whose only words are, well, whose main words are malo, 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 which in Latin, it's a famous Latin, it's anyone taking Latin? And evil. Sort of, yeah. It's a famous Latin um, trick question, how do you translate that? And it's, um, the correct translation is, I would rather be, and he sings it this way, I would rather be in an apple tree than a naughty boy in adversity. So malo means I would rather. Malo means in an apple tree. Malo means... Um, Yes, I know, but <laughs> among apples, or, or among an apple, with an apple. I would rather be with an apple um, than a naughty one. Sorry? Could be ablative Yes, so with an apple. No, it doesn't really work, but... Uh, yeah, buffalo, 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 buffalo. Um, or, or, of course, bulldogs, 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 fight, fight, fight is the famous grammatical instance. Um, yeah. Bulldogs fight bulldogs who fight bulldogs who fight bulldogs. And that's what the Yell Fight song is. They're huh. just, the Yell Fight song is just pointing out that bulldogs fight those bulldogs who fight bulldogs that are fighting. Bulldogs, 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 fight, fight, fight. Um, linguists are taken by the fact that we can't parse that sentence, that you can parse um, the, the cat the dog barked at snarled. Um, that's a little bit hard, but not very hard. But if you add one more frame, the, the, um, the mouse, the cat, the dog barked at, chased, escaped. We just can't follow it. Um, you can do it on paper, but you can't do it in your head, and you would have to unpack it on paper. Um, this is the theory part of this class. Um, so... Um, and I remember you were really interested in garden path sentences. Yeah. So what's, give me the example you gave last year about Manning. Oh, it was, um, um, yeah, it was, it was about Manning the boat. Um, yeah. All right. I'll look it up. Yeah, look it up. It's on Wikipedia, but keep your iPads down. Um, Okay, so what's cinematic about it, what, what, or what attracts directors to the idea, is that you would have this house in which people are flitting oh, around yeah. constantly. It's the old man, the boat. Oh, yeah. So, it's uh, the old, so you read it and you think it's the old man, the boat, and there's no verb there? Yeah. It's the old as an old people, man, the boat. Yeah. So the old man, the boat, you know? Now I'm hearing it the right way. Yeah. Uh, All right, so time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. It's Groucho, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So now you've learned a little Marxist reading as well. Uh, okay. Uh, still too early to laugh. <laughs> that was good, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's been five minutes. Now you can laugh. All right. <laughs> it's just a kind of theoretical acknowledgement that it would be funny if it weren't so early. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the theory part of this class, too. In theory, that was funny. Um, <laughs> 
Okay. Um, so, lots of servants flittering through the house, but we barely catch sight of them. And for a cinematic um, view of Turn of the Screw, that's great. Because what it can mean is she sees something and she turns and yeah, it's just a servant cleaning up, but only a flash. There's lots of peripheral vision stuff. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of living people in the house. There are a lot of living people at Bly, but not a lot of living people in her consciousness as we have it. Not a lot of living people in the consciousness of the narrative. Um, in the consciousness of the narrator while this is occurring, of course there are, but that's the stuff she doesn't tell us about. But in the consciousness of the narrative, there aren't very many living people. So that's one of the ways that we, that we find um, something brooding and strange about it. You know, she's picked up by a coach and four, by a fly, not by a coach and four, by a fly. Do people know what a fly means in that context? What does it mean, Maya? Yeah, and one horse. Um, so it flies. It goes very fast. It's, it's small and light and goes fast. Um, and so those in 19th, when you read 19th century novels, that's what a fly means. Um, it's it's um, the, the carriage equivalent of um, a mini. Um, so she's picked up who's driving it? A driver. Um, you know, there are plenty of servants there, but they really are all constantly disappearing into the woodwork. And there's a very hothouse atmosphere, um, a greenhouse atmosphere, you could almost call it, um, in which um, they're the, the children, Mrs. Gross, and the governess. And without Mrs. Gross, um, it would just be absurd. She's, in a sense, a reality check um, in the course of the narrative, because um, we don't know any other reality than that. Okay, now here is the possibilities. Um, even, if you're, if, even if you're not done, you know that these are possibilities. Um, that, to simplify, um, without, without going wrong, the children don't see ghosts. Whether the ghosts exist or not is another question. The children don't see ghosts. And the governess is wrong when she thinks that they do. Now, just for the sake of the future, um, there are other hypotheses that the governess is going to entertain implicitly. Um, her initial hypothesis is the children do see the ghosts. Not quite initial, but the hypothesis that um, she works on for most of the books, the children see the ghosts and are keeping and are not admitting to her that they do. Um, but another possibility is the ghosts are real, but the children don't see them. And a third possibility that's going to be important towards the end of the book is that each child sees only the ghost that is associated with that child. That is, that Flora sees Miss Jessel, but not Peter Quint, and that Miles sees Peter Quint, but not Miss Jessel. And um, so it's clear Mrs. Gross doesn't see the ghosts. Are we willing to stipulate to that? Um, Mrs. Gross doesn't see the ghosts. Um, but the children seem to see them. And at first it seems, and may turn out to be true, um, that each child 
is can see both ghosts the way uh, a brother and a sister would see both parents, which also suggests that there's a sense in which the ghosts are their replacement parents. Um, so that's that, that's what the governess. Those are the things the governess is assuming. But the main thing is the ghosts are real. Whatever the children know about the ghosts, the main thing the ghosts are real. If the children see the ghosts, which is her second assumption, but one she's less sure of. If the children see the ghosts, and she's 95% sure that they do, if the children see the ghosts, or 95% eh, sure might be too strong, but uh, she's working on the worst case scenario, which is that they see the ghosts, then what the children are trying to do is convince her that they don't see ghosts. So there's a competition, and this is really what's going on in the book. There's a competition, a struggle between the governess and the children. Remember that the protagonist of any narrative is the first player in a competition. Remember that that's what protagonist means? First player. Proto, first, as in proton, the first elementary particle, or prototype, the first type of something, um, or protozoa, the first kind of life, or not. Um, so the first player is the governess, the protagonist, and she plays against an opponent, the antagonist. That's all narrative is protagonist versus antagonist. Um, and as I said before, there's sometimes a deuteroagonist, which is another player. Deutero meaning another. Deuteronomy is another law. You had four books of law, but here's a fifth book. Deuteronomy, another law. The law given to you again in digest. So deutero means another, as in deuterium, <laughs> which has two neutrons. Um, so the protagonist is the governess. The antagonists then are either the ghosts or the children. She's not sure which. But certainly there's a complex antagonist in her mind, which is the set that contains the ghosts and the children, or would contain the ghosts if they existed and contains the children. But she's not really sure which. But let's say that in her mind, her assumption is the children are her antagonists um, in a technical sense, which is that she has almost no dealings with the ghosts. All she does is witnesses them. But it's only towards the end that she actually confronts them. So she doesn't actually deal with the ghosts. She deals with the children. And the children, if they're her antagonists, but she doesn't know whether they are or not. But if they're her antagonists, the children, the, the move that what she's trying to do then is get the children to admit that they're consorting with ghosts, that the, that, that the whisperings are the whisperings with ghosts, to go back to the nurse's song. The whisperings heard in the dale are those of the children talking to the ghosts. That's what her goal is to get them to admit that in the conflict she's having with the children. Her desire is to get them to admit that. Their desire 
is to deny it in a way that's plausible. Her move to get them to admit it, I just remember this as a cartoon that I saw when I was a little kid. A, a kid is calling into school. It was in the Sunday newspaper. Um, and he's calling into school. And first he says, um, hi, Timmy can't come to school today. He's sick. And then he listens. And then he responds, this is my father. Um, <laughs> so if the children were ever to say, we don't see ghosts, what would that prove? That they see them. Yeah, because what is she making absolutely sure not to do? Tell them. Yeah, she never mentions the ghosts to the children. So the game is a game which is partly her trying to get the children to admit they're playing the game. So that's the first spooky thing, is that she's playing a game against children who she is trying to get to admit that they are playing a game and not that they're innocent of the fact that a game is going on. If they're innocent, they don't know there's a game going on. And so if they were to admit that they were playing the game, they would lose it. But if she were to admit that she was playing the game, she would lose it. So she is playing a game that she knows that she's playing but won't admit to the children she was playing. Because if she said to the children, I know you see ghosts, they would say, cuckoo bird and she would be dismissed. Even if they saw the ghosts, they would say, she accused us of seeing ghosts, it's ridiculous. Um, so she, what she wants them to do is to say, you know we see ghosts. And um, so she and the children are playing, we only get it from her point of view, but consider this, they are playing exactly the same game. She's pretending that she doesn't see ghosts, and she thinks they're pretending that they don't see ghosts. Both the governess, from the governess's point of view, both the governess and the children are pretending not to see ghosts. However, we only get her point of view, so we don't know if the children are really pretending not to see ghosts or if they don't see them. Um, all right, uh, try to read some more for tomorrow. Remember to be finished by Monday, and then you'll have the entire experience. Any more papers from anyone? Did you get mine? Um, yes, I did.